Let's pray. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Your word converts. Your word convicts. And your word alone can transform these lives of ours into Christ-centered, Christ-honoring lives. We pray that you would do that. Speak, and we will hear. Speak so that we may do. Cause us to obey your word. That we may glorify you and you alone. For your own sake we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles to the book of James chapter 2, please. James 2. We will give attention to verse 8 through to 13. My main focus this morning will be verse 8. It's one section, but hopefully I'm able to keep the running theme throughout the section over the next few sermons. This morning I want to speak to you about the royal law and the sin of discrimination, or I think in your notes it says favoritism. Discrimination is a common problem in this world. doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter how old you are, there's a struggle with favoritism. Mankind, that's not just men, mankind, are masters at showing favoritism. From parents who favor the successful one or the smart one to politicians who favor those who agree with them or give the most money. While discrimination exists, and it is painfully evident that it does today, nothing that sinful man conjures up will ever eradicate, will ever eradicate the problem of discrimination. There is nothing that our government can do about the problem, because the problem is not just external. It's an internal problem. The reason why we will never eradicate the problem of favoritism in this world apart from the sovereign kingdom reign of Christ, the reason why it will never be done is because we start and end with man. We start with the need of man and we end with the solution being in man. Deuteronomy 10.17 says, God shows no partiality. God does not have the capacity, capacity to discriminate. He does not. 
The perfection of God is made manifest in that He does not treat people the way that we treat people. Riches does not matter to God. It matters to us. Poverty does not matter to God. It matters to us. There are rich Christians and there are poor Christians, but they are the same and equal in the eyes of God. There are rich sinners and they are poor sinners, and both are equal in the eyes of God. God does not care about our bank balance if it's zero or if there's a surplus. It doesn't matter to Him. Your status before people does not affect your status before God. Just because you are well known doesn't mean God cares about you. God is not affected by our outward demonstration of riches. But we are. We discriminate because we focus on externals. We tend to start and end with man. And that's the problem. The solution to discrimination is not found in man, by man, or through man. It's not found in our governments. It's not found in anything that you can do in changing society. With all the rumbling noise about what we can do to eradicate discrimination, by doing that we cause discrimination. See, God, however, is not impressed by our externals. He alone is impartial to all, all the time. Why? Because God does not respond to people in the way that we do. But He responds to people in a way that reflects His character. Therefore, it stands to reason that those who belong to God, those who have been saved by God's grace or changed from above, as James calls it, been given or born from above, they operate by a different ethic. If there is any group in the history of the world, in the existence of the world, who are supposed to be unaffected by the mess of discrimination, it should be whom? The church. You and I. Those who have been saved by the mercy and grace of God... Those whom God has called from the various walks of life, those who are in the kingdom, are those who are to operate by one rule. They are subject to the law of the kingdom. The law of Christ is the antidote to the problem of discrimination. Christians live by a different set of rules. The world by nature will discriminate. There will always be partiality. They can't help themselves. They cannot change themselves. Their unredeemed fallen condition continually will tend towards discrimination and favoritism. But Christians, we must be able to look beyond skin color. If there's anybody in this world that is colorblind, it must be those who are Christians. Social status should not matter to Christians. 
The kind of clothing you wear should not matter to believers. Why? Because at the foot of the cross, we are all leveled to the same place. There is no believer who is far more important to God than any other believer. So we see each other through the blood of the cross. And that's why discrimination can be dealt with in the church of Jesus Christ through the law of Christ. The great leveler is the cross. Before Jesus, we all stand equal. Christians have the supreme opportunity to put on display what the love of God looks like in the midst of diversity and refuse discrimination. We have a diverse group of people here. I'm not talking about how you look on the outside. There are those of you who prefer coffee. I'm looking at you, yes. But we put up with his uh, sinful ways. They... There are those of you who, um, who have refined the art of making coffee. We will not mention names. <laughs> but we will not discriminate against them. If there's any place where we can put up with such a wide diversity, it should be in the church of Jesus Christ. Because we see each other through new lenses. We see each other through the blood of Christ. He died for you as much as he died for the re-coffee person. I'm going to hear it on Wednesday, I know. <laughs> as we have seen in the book of James, in this very young, this, this very immature community of faith, there were those who were deferring to the ungodly rich. They saw the external uh, display of riches and immediately thought, we need to support that guy. We should not be so quick to frown upon this community of faith because we do the same. It may not be the external riches um, or display of riches that sway us, but it may be an accent. It may be a country. Oh no, if he comes from Ireland, he must say something good. Oh, did you hear that accent? I, I got to go to that guy. I got to listen to him. I, I cannot go to a guy who was brought up in Paul. Who, who wants to drive to Paul anyway? The perennial problem of discrimination can be dealt with in the church of Jesus Christ. Through the cross of Jesus Christ. In the law of Christ. I'm going to deal with, with something very difficult today, which is the law of Christ. I've mentioned it a few times, and by now you should know that that will be the theme of our passage and the theme of our discussion this morning. But we have learned thus far that James expects the believer to live in a certain way. If you were here for chapter 1, verse 18, these are those who have been born of God, who through the monogistic work of God, that is the divine, free act of God alone to bring life to sinners, if those who have been changed by God are gods, they must live differently. So he expects them to live differently. 
There must be signs of life. In chapter 2, the mark of one who is born from above, the one who has been changed by God, is demonstrated in three ways. Firstly, they reject partiality. Secondly, there is obedience to the law, the royal law. And then thirdly, there's demonstration of works, or I should say demonstration of appropriate works. I've given you the outline of chapter 2. The rejection of partiality is verse 1 through to 7. The obedience to the royal law is verse 8 through to 13. The demonstration of works and appropriate works is verse 14 through to the end, verse 26. This morning, our focus is on the second part. How James expects believers to obey the royal law. That which should mediate our relationships as God's people is the law of Christ. So what I want you to see this morning is that the royal law is to be foremost in the hearts and lives of those who are God's people and act as an antidote for discrimination. The royal law must be foremost in the lives of God's people because it is the antidote to the problem of discrimination. There are three truths about the law that we must know and respond to if we are to overcome the sin of discrimination. These are the three truths. I know that uh, a, an individual in this pulpit once said that it's bad um, uh, exegesis to give your outline up front. I give my outline up front. Number one, the law, the law to keep is the royal law. Number two, the law to keep governs the people of God. Number three, the law to keep must be expressed to the people of God. Now, it may sound the same, and I will prove to you that it is not exactly. The law to keep is firstly the royal law. It, is, it governs God's people, and it must be expressed to God's people. So let's give attention to verse 8. I'm going to read the entire section since it is one unit. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but, you, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So, speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. By far the most difficult section in this book. As you've noticed, the word law is mentioned about five times, but in reference to the greater context, it's mentioned about seven times in this few verses, 8 through 13. So what is he wanting us to Think about 
the law. The law is identified in three different ways in the section. The royal law, the law of liberty, and the whole law, or just the law, which is the same thing. The expected reality here in verse 8 is obedience to the royal law. Now, look with me in the beginning part of verse 8. It says, if you really fulfill the royal law. In grammar, we call that a conditional clause. This basically means, and this kind of conditional clause, has the idea of something which is assumed to be true. And in the grammar books, they would say, for the sake of argument, this is true. Then, if this is true, the net result is, and the net result is actually put at the end of the verse, you are doing well. So that is the main crux of this verse. Let me put it together for you. If you are keeping or doing the royal law, you're doing well. That's his main point. That is all that he wants us to understand. If you are keeping it, if you are in the habit of living this way, you are doing really well. But the condition gives the idea that you may not be. And that's the sense in which he writes this verse in. So if for the sake of argument you are continually fulfilling this royal law, then you are pleasing the Lord. You are doing well. I am only going to have time for verse 8 and possibly just part of verse 8. That's okay. I can come back and deal with the rest of it. And I hope to be able to cover all the aspects that I hope to cover this morning. But there are a number of interpretive problems. And this is why it is so difficult. I'm going to spend some time on it because it will help us understand James's point and help us to think about how God wants us to respond. What is an interpretive problem? Well, it's one of those things that there's not a huge amount of agreement on. So you've got different views, and I will show to you um, that there are quite a different number of ways in which people understand this section. For instance, what is the royal law? Or is it the supreme law? Or is it the sovereign law? Secondly, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Does it mean everyone? Or does it just mean the Jews? Number three. Did I say three already? Number three. How does it relate to the believer? Aren't we freed from the law? Then why is James expecting us to obey the law? Is this just for the Jews or is it for Christian Jews as well? I mean, Christians as well. Christian Jews. There are, there's a wide array of answers to these questions, and these are valid questions, and we will need to deal with them. And I believe some of the answers can be derived from the plain reading of the verse. Okay, number one. First of all, the law to keep is the royal law. Some translations have in verse 8... If you fulfill the royal law, instead of royal, they have the word supreme law. The contemporary English version, which is not actually a translation, I don't know what it is, but it's not a translation, says the most important law. That's the CEV translation or version. Um, Is this the most important law? Some just leave off royal completely because it's so difficult to translate, and they just say law. And if you've got that Bible, you may want to write there royal, but don't write royal yet. I will, I will 
give you a better word to write in there. This is not the sovereign law, because all that God gives in the law is what? Sovereign, because it comes from a sovereign God. So don't identify this as just being the sovereign law, because then it would exclude every other law. That's a problem. There is no lexical that will give you sovereign as an honest translation for this specific word. The Geneva translation, however, says scripture. So if you are really fulfilling scripture, well, that's a problem because it says at the end of this clause, according to what? Scripture. That word scripture is actually the word graphe, which is normally translated scripture. So it can't be scripture. It is the word nomos. The problem is, what do we do with the adjective royal? That is what we will look at this morning. Neither of these provide an accurate rendering of the word, but I found an unsuspectingly accurate translation in an Afrikaans translation. So I'm going to read a little bit of Afrikaans. And if you don't understand, I'm going to try to make a little English translation from it. Listen to the Afrikaans translation, the 1983 version. As jylle werkelijk die wet van die koningreid van God onderhoud, soos dit in die skrif staan, dan doen jylle goed. Now most of you understand that. Hold on for those of you non-English speakers. The 1953 version says it even better. As jylle evenwel die koninglijke wet volbring volgens die skrif. I have not found a better translation than that one. Now those of you who know Afrikaans, what is the word that stands out to you there? Koninglika. What is that in English? Kingly. Keep that in mind. So for those of you who do not speak English, let me try to give you a literal English translation. If you are actually fulfilling the kingly law, According to the scripture, you do well. It sounds almost the same, right? It wasn't that big of a deal. The only thing that changes is the word kingly instead of royal. So now let me prove it to you. Most English translations lose it. But it is pretty evident in the Greek and Germanic languages. Look at chapter 2 verse 5. Turn over a page. If you are in the same Bible as mine, you should turn back. Verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has God, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and is of the, what is this word? Kingdom, which he had promised to those who love him. Okay? Look at verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law, you know that word there, royal, is actually the word kingdom. Kingly, because it's adjectival. I don't use Greek a lot in this pulpit. I'm going to use it now for the sake of symmetry, to help you hear the sound in Greek. The word in chapter 2 verse 5 is basileas. Basileas. The word in chapter 2 verse 8 is basilikon. Basilikon. Hear the symmetry? Basileas, basilikon, and they all both come from basileis which is king. Kingdom, kingly, king. What do you think James is talking about? 
Something that relates to both king and kingdom. The symmetry that he has in the text is there for a reason. Both relates to the king, the Bazalus, in some certain way. I think James wanted us to hear this as we read it. Because this is not far removed. Those uh, who were chosen from the world to be heirs of the Basileas. And then he comes to verse 8. If you are really fulfilling the Basilecon law according to the scripture. It sounds the same because it relates to the same thing. This is not just any law. This is the law of the king. So if you write in your Bible, write kingly as an adjective. Because that is the most accurate translation of this word. It sounds awkward. doesn't sound right. But that is what James is trying to convey to his people. If you are truly fulfilling the kingly law, if we had it in a genitive to show possession of the law, we will, it should have said, if you, are fulfilling, if you are truly fulfilling the kingdom law of God, which is what the 1983 version of the Afrikaans translation says. So for once, the Afrikaans got it right. <laughs> Remember when I preached that, I think it was a two-part series on the kingdom, there were two things that I mentioned is primary to the kingdom. First, the kingdom must have what? A king. Secondly, the kingdom must have a, an ethic or a law. I did it back then to point out the fact that you cannot have a kingdom without a king and a law. James understood this. Understood this. If you are heirs of the kingdom, get this. If you are heirs of the kingdom, you live by a different law. You live by the king's law. You live by the kingly law. You live by the law of Christ. So what then is this ethic? Well, James calls it the royal or the kingly law. I suppose the law of the kingdom is okay. It's an okay translation. I wouldn't go that far because it changes the the nuance of the, the text. We don't have to suspect what it is. But notice what he says at the end of royal law. According to the scripture as a whole, singularly. So the royal law is not something that is different to what scripture has already said. So the royal law is according to the scripture. That phrase, prepositional phrase, according to the scripture means as it stands written or as it is in scripture. This suggests that the the law given by the king, the royal law, is no different to what scripture already says. This is nothing new. It's a law that is in scripture but stated by the king as his law. I see the wheels turning. So I think some of you know where I'm going with this. The implication of this is that Jesus expects his people to live according to his royal kingly decree. You live by my rules and my law and you do exactly as I say. My my mom used to say, you don't make the rules, you don't break the rules, you follow the rules. 
my boys know that phrase very well. You don't make the rules. You don't break the rules. You follow the rules. That's what Jesus is expecting of his people. You don't add to my rules. You don't get to make up your own law. You don't get to add to the law. You don't amend the law. You don't uh, edit the law. You don't say, well, I don't like this part of the law. You perform my law. You do my law. You obey and follow the kingly law. So firstly, the command of Christ, the king, is the royal law. Because it comes from the king. That's why it's the royal law. Because the king spoke it. Now what is this king's law? What is this royal law? Look at the last part, or the middle part of verse 8. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you are really keeping the kingly law or the royal law, according to the scripture as it stands written in the pages of scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, then you're doing well. Here again, there are some challenges that we have to consider. So, James tells us, this is the kingly law. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's not that difficult to understand. So, number two. The law to keep governs the people of God. Don't miss this. James is saying, if you are truly obeying it, then you are on the right track. Now, this is the command that you should be obeying. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That sounds very familiar, right? And it should. It sounds exactly as you would find it in the Old Testament. And it is. So this is clearly Old Testament, an Old Testament quote, right? Yes and kind of. It is. But there's something else to it. What did he just call it? This is the kingly law. He's not saying that this is what you would find in the law of Moses, even though you do. He says, no, this is the kingly law according to scripture. So what the king says aligns with what the scripture says. So then, this law at some stage must be on the lips of Jesus in order for it to qualify as the kingly law. And it is. Turn back to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. Have a look at verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, As we think of lawyer as somebody who takes a case up in court, a lawyer here was a student of the law, one who studies the law. A lawyer, a person who studies the law, not a person who's going to take Jesus to court, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Hmm. Clearly they didn't get it either. So you tell us. And if the answer is wrong, they would have just reason to stone him. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. What is the question? Which is the great commandment? What is the most important commandment? 
Jesus gives that commandment. It is, is this, to love God with all that you are. The most important commandment, love God. But notice what Jesus says. This is the great and first commandment. And the second, a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That is a tremendous amount of weight. Jesus says the entirety of scripture rests on understanding these two commandments. So Jesus states this as a command. Now, turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, verse 29. Remember my point here is that the law of Christ, the law that we must keep, governs the people of God governs us. Look at Mark chapter 12 and 29. I'm going to read from verse 28. Same situation. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing what he answered them, uh, sorry, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? What is the the key commandment in all of scripture. And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Where does that come from? Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I think it's verse 6. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The most important command. Now, look at verse 31. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Think about that. There is no greater commandment than these two. Love God. Love people. Now, Mark adds something which is really interesting. Take your eyes down to verse 33. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself. It's a restatement of what was just said. Is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Think about that. Remember I said in Matthew that there's a tremendous amount of weight. All of the law and the prophets point to these two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. In them you fulfill everything. In other words, the entirety of the law and the prophets can be summed up in these two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. But Mark who's writing as he's traveling with Peter as a commentary. This is in the opposite side of the cross. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. In other words, 
to keep these two laws, you are saying we don't need any other sacrifice any longer. Consider the weight of that. How on earth are they able to say that it doesn't matter that you're not able to go to the altar? Why would you not need to go to the altar? Because the sacrifices are ultimately already fulfilled. The law, in this case, when he says, is much more than all uh, burnt offerings and sacrifices, that is part of the law. That is included in the law as it is given at the same time as these two great commandments are given. So how can this be? Since Jesus didn't die yet. Well, Mark is writing post-cross. Now looking back at the cross, he sees the fulfillment. He fully understands because the Spirit has come and brought the revelation. He now gets it. The kingly law implies that there is no longer any more need for any sacrifice. The only requirement that the king has, the only law that he requires of his people are these two. Love God, love his people. The only law that God requires us to fulfill post-cross is that we love him above all and we prize his people above all. So in keeping this law, We are saying that God no longer requires sacrifices since Christ adequately fulfills every other aspect of the law. That is the weight of these two commandments. When Jesus says, you're asking me, what is the greatest commandment? Let me tell you that the law actually points to the fulfillment of of me keeping every other law. And in keeping these two, you are saying that there is no longer need to go to the altar and sacrifice because I have completely fulfilled the sacrifice. Christ adequately fulfilled what the law required. It is important to note that James, in keeping with Old Testament tradition, says that the law is singular. He mentions it as law and graphe as scripture. It's always singular. It's a singular whole. While Jesus gives two commands, they both relate to a singular law. Why? Because the law is always singular. Now, we, we break the law into three. Um, moral, ceremonial, and civil. I, I, I challenge you to, to give that, find that breakdown in scripture. You won't. Because Jesus and the Old Testament saints and the apostles understood the law to be a singular whole. James will make that point later on for us. So then if you break any part of it, you break it all. But if you keep the two main commands, what do you do with the rest of them? It is adequately fulfilled. So when, Chris, when Scripture says that Christ is the end of the law, in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, I believe, Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He is the, 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 the culmination of the law. 
It means that everything in the law points to him as the ultimate fulfiller of the requirement of the law. He is the all-in-one satisfaction of the law. Now, what's the significance of the law being fulfilled? Turn to Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned Sin in the flesh. He condemns sin in the flesh. Understand what Paul is saying here. The fulfillment of the law is where? In Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of God's righteous requirement. So then if the law is ultimately fulfilled in Christ, what does it mean for us? Well, look at the verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled, what's that last phrase? In us. Not through us. In us. Understand what Paul is saying. The law is ultimately perfectly fulfilled in you. How? By Jesus Christ coming by means of the Spirit to live in you. He brings the fact that he ultimately fulfilled every righteous requirement of the law to you so that when you are in Christ, you have fully, perfectly fulfilled the law. You fulfilled it. How? Because Christ fulfilled it. In fact, that is what he says. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, we have the fulfillment of the Lord in us. We who walk according to Uh, Not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If you have the Spirit of God, if you have obedience and it shows in your life, if you do what God requires of you, if there's a demonstration of the Spirit's presence in in your life, then this is the reality of you. The law in in, in its entirety is fulfilled in us. All the law which God requires to be fulfilled has been fulfilled in us. In Jesus Christ, by giving his spirit to us. So then, the law is fulfilled in us, which means that the the law of death no longer has any bearing on the child of God. But at the same time, there remains a law by which we live. What law is this? James says it's the royal law. may sound confusing at this time. Hold on. I'll clear it up now. So the kingly law which is to love your neighbor as yourself, which Paul also calls the law of Christ, is the law by which we must live. The kingly law dominates and governs our life. We no longer live by the law of Moses, because we cannot live by the law of Moses. But we live by the law of Christ, which is the royal law, which is simply to love your neighbor as yourself. What we need to understand is that fulfilling the law 
that Christ gave is in essence keeping every other law. Think about it this way. If you love God, you will not have idols. If you love your neighbor, you will not murder. You will not commit adultery. You will not steal. Fulfilling these two is a fulfillment of every other law. Jesus says the the, the greatest requirement that he has are these two laws. Love God and love God's people. The royal law sums up the law and the prophets. Why? Because from the vantage point of the cross, Christ adequately, perfectly fulfills every righteous requirement that the law has on us. And you cannot keep it. You cannot please God by keeping the law. You cannot please God by doing what the law requires. Why? Romans chapter 8 verse 2 tells us we are sinful. The law is weakened by sin, by our flesh. It's weakened by who we are, so we cannot adequately fulfill the law. But there is one who does and who has. That is Jesus Christ. So when Christ comes to live in us, the law is ultimately fulfilled. Now let's get back to that difficult question. Why is James quoting this passage? Does he intend for us to keep the law. Can't tell you how many articles I read on this. It's actually the wrong question. Because James is not talking about the law, he's talking about the royal law. He clearly identifies it. So the answer to the question, does James expect us to keep the law? The answer is no. But it does intend us to keep the royal law. The answer to that is yes. We cannot. Please God, by keeping the law. But we are required as kingdom citizens to live by the kingly law. What will define God's people in a wicked world? Let me show to you that this command that Jesus gives is given in a variety of different ways. The command to love is the fulfillment of that law. And often we overlook this. We may know this passage. What is it that Christ said will be the unmistakable evidence that you are his disciple? John chapter 13, I believe it's verse 34. Say it, brother. Yes. By this shall all men know That you are my disciples if you love one another. Turn over to 1 John chapter 2. Remember that. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you would love one another. John chapter 2. 1 John, sorry, not John. 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. I'm going to read from verse 4 because there's, there's a connection that James makes here. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, take note of this, the love of God is perfected. God's love is now in him and there's a change. 
By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is, new, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And then he goes on to speak about the effect of this commandment. What is the commandment that he's talking about here? John Chapter 13, verse 34. If you love one another. The royal law to love your neighbor as yourself is on the lips of Jesus, just in a different format. Now, look at chapter 4, verse 7 of the same book. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love knows not God, because God is love. You know what that is? It's a restatement of the command. John chapter 13, verse 34. Love one another. This is how you know that you are God's if you love. Look at verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses Jesus as the Son of God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Verse 19. We love because he first loved us. You know what John is doing? He's connecting the two great commandments. Love for God and love for God's people. The one is not possible without the other. The one love for God results in love for God's people. What is John saying? The governing principle of God's people, the the identifying factor that you are a child of God is love for God and his people. In other words, the prime directive of love is to be experienced and demonstrated in the community of faith. That is what Jesus is talking about. When he says Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. He's not thinking of you living by yourself on a little island, doing your own little thing. Because John restates that command for us. And he says what Jesus is talking about is you demonstrating that you love your brother and you hate the world. John and James are saying the same thing. The one place you must see and will see and experience God's love is in the church of Jesus Christ. Love for Christ's people flows from a love for God. 
And if we claim to love God, then it is necessary that we love God's people. This is what James is alluding to. One more thing. You may have noticed that Jesus gave two commands that relates to this royal law. What is it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So let me ask you this question. If this is the royal law, where's the first part of it then in James? Turn back to James. He calls it the royal law. But why do we not see then loving God? It's a good question. Look at verse 12 of chapter 1. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who what? Love him. Who's him? God. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised? Two, what does the last part of the verse say? Those who, what? Love him. Loving God is presumed. The command is already present. He's saying, well, if this is a reality, what on earth are you doing preferring unrighteous, ungodly sinners over God's people? How are you saying that you are loving God's people but then preferring the rich man? How do you... Make the connection. You're saying that you love God, but you do not love your brother. In fact, notice what he says later on. Verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and be filled without giving him uh, the things needed for the body, what good is is that. Take note of that. What good is that? Where did we hear that phrase? Verse 8. If you are really fulfilling the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing good. James connects these things together to show us, listen, if you are saying you love God, And if you're going through trials, if you're going through hardship, God has promised you as those who love him that there will be blessing post-trial. Not in this life, in a life to come. Now what we ought to do is to joy in our trials. What he's pointing to here is that if you love God, if you're going through the hardship that you're going through, that shows that God has not only chosen you, and that you not only love him, but that there's a necessary corollary outworking of that, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. James already alluded to the fact that the first command is presumed of this audience. That is why he says, if you are really fulfilling the royal law, If this is what you're claiming to do, then yes, fine, you're doing well. But then you have to love your neighbor as yourself. I have one minute left. Let me see what I can do in one minute. Both commands exist in different forms in this book. In fact, you will find it in different forms in the entirety of the New Testament, especially in 1 John. God's love for us, God's love in us, 
Our love for God, we love him. We, we love because he first loved us. That is all part and parcel of the first command. Then, love for one another. Read 1 John. Those two commands are explained in a variety of different ways in the book of John. Thirdly, so we've already seen that the law by which Christians ought to live is the law of Christ. Secondly, we saw that the command of Christ, the law of Christ, governs the people of God. Number three, I will make this very quick in the last two minutes. The law of Christ must be expressed to the people of God. James 2.8 If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. This raises the question, who is my neighbor? That question has been answered in a variety of different ways. Most commentators at this stage leave the context and abide by what is called the rule of common understanding. The rule of common understanding here is that neighbor is understood as you and I understand neighbor. Everyone around us. So my nosy old little lady down the road who's up in everybody's business or the shy old little lady who's suspicious of everybody, um, especially the kids. That, that, that is what we culturally understand neighbor to, to be. In fact, one commentator says, it is anyone in need, anyone in need is your neighbor. Think about that. So if neighbor then means to love anyone who is in need and it is based on the fact of the Good Samaritan. So if that is the neighbor, then what on earth does James mean here? Let's apply that principle. Love your neighbor. Love everyone equally as yourself. What is the context? You have chosen the ungodly, rich sinner over the believer. Would they not be doing the right thing then? Would they not be loving the neighbor if they are loving the ungodly rich? So why then this contrast? If you are really fulfilling the law, you should be loving your neighbor. In this context, it seems to allude to the fact that the neighbor is the believer. In fact, Romans chapter 15 verse 2, to do good to your neighbor is given in a church context. Galatians chapter 5.14, considering your neighbor, loving your neighbor, is given in a church context. Luke chapter 10, the Good Samaritan, is given in a limited context. Why? The priest, he's a Jew. The, um, let me see if I made a note. I don't think I made a note here. Uh, the priest is a Jew. The Levite is a Jew. And the Samaritan is a half-Jew. They're all Jewish by nature. They're still Jews. It's limited in its sense. But all these passages that I just gave you are a quotation of either Deuteronomy chapter 6 or Leviticus chapter 19. And Leviticus chapter 19 is crucially important for the section because in Leviticus chapter 19, God limits the neighbor to those whom you know, those whom you love, your kin, your people. When Jesus quotes it and the apostle use it in the New Testament, they use it in the same way, a limited context in view. It is always, always those of your family. 
those who belong to you, those you are close to. It is never used of those who are outside. There's two occasions where it is used in the Old Testament of the um, the Egyptians as the Jews were leaving Israel. And the word neighbor in the Old Testament is used there. That's the only two occasions where it is an unco- uncommon use. Every, that's prior to the laws given, by the way. So you can't even use that as an argument. Once a law is given, once God gives them uh, the, 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 the law as a, as a living principle, Neighbor is always used in a limited sense. So who's the neighbor? It is believers. Neighbor in the New Testament context are always believers. So when James says here, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, he's talking about how you relate to those around you. How you love God's people. Time over time, let me finish. So when James says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's specifically talking about God's people. This doesn't mean that you cannot love others. It doesn't mean that you do not uh, show kindness to your neighbor. It doesn't mean that you have to love yourself first, because you already do. That's the presumed uh, point that he's making. Let me ask you this question. In this context, James is wanting the community of faith to show concern and practical love for those who are suffering as Christians. What are we doing when we prefer Zoom over the in-person fellowship with God's people? What are we doing when we say, oh, it's really cold today, and cold days are coming, I can guarantee you that, and staying home for a cup of soup because it is more convenient to lie in bed for another hour than come in the cold to fellowship with God's people. That is not loving your neighbors yourself. Your presence in the community of faith is an encouragement to other people. Your life that God is working in is an encouragement to other people. James says at the end, well, if you are doing this, if you are loving your neighbor, you are doing well. You're living honorably. You're doing the right thing in the right way. That's a commendation. If we are loving God's people the way that we must love God's people, if we are doing the thing that God, or I should say that the King requires of us, then we are doing well. The opposite is scary. Look at verse 9. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressions. If you want to know what that means, come back in two weeks and I will deal with with that. The point that James is making here is that obedience to the kingly law is the means through which we can overcome discrimination. Love God and love his people and that is the answer to the problem of discrimination. Let's pray. Father, help us for we are weak. Strengthen our resolve to do your will. Help us to keep the law of Christ. In our weakness, guide and mature us that we may fulfill the law of Christ. That we may do as you desire us to do. That is to love your people 
the way that you desire us to love you. Thank you for your grace and your patience. We pray not only for understanding, but for an application of this truth. So we give thanks in your name. Amen.